0: Hello, free speech lovers. This is your host, Nico Perino. Are you a regular listener to this podcast? Do you think the ideas we discuss, like free speech, academic freedom, and a free press are important? If so, please consider giving us a five star rating on iTunes. It's the easiest thing you can do to help get us more listeners on the show. Just go to iTunes on your computer or open up your podcast app on your iPhone, search for So to Speak. And give us your rating. It's as simple as that. And have you unintentionally missed a few of the past episodes? Like maybe our gonzo style trip to Flying Dog Brewery or our interview with author Jonathan Rausch? If so, you sound like someone who should sign up for our email list. You can find that email list at thefire.org slash so to speak podcast. We'll send you an email every other Thursday when a new podcast is posted and you'll never miss an episode, or at least hopefully. So now, on to the show. Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights.
1: Freedom of uh, conscience.
0: Academic freedom.
1: Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for
0: individual rights in education. Welcome back to So To Speak where we take a look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. If you care about issues relating to free expression, you should care about Turkey. According to recent reports, more than 123,000 Turks have been fired from their jobs, more than 42,000 people have been arrested, including more than 150 journalists, around 150 news outlets have been shut down, And 6,900 academics have lost their jobs. And all of this has happened since July 2016, when there was an attempted coup in Turkey of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan's government. This led to a brutal crackdown on anyone within Turkish society perceived to be a threat to the Erdogan government. Critical journalists, academics demanding protection of human rights and civil rights, Judges and prosecutors who won't bend the law to Erdogan's will? The list continues, and you get the picture. And to justify this crackdown, surprise, surprise, the government has used emergency decrees and overbroad and vague speech codes. Sound familiar? I spend my days fighting speech codes with the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education and standing up for students and professors who find themselves punished for violating these illiberal and at public colleges, unconstitutional policies. And while the violations of student and faculty rights on American campuses seriously threaten the fabric of our liberal society, what's been happening in Turkey recently makes what's been happening in the United States look almost petty. While, for example, we often see a professor's job in danger because they dissent from a campus orthodoxy, never do we see that same professor jailed for their dissent under threat of a permanent blacklist from ever finding a job ever again. Turkey is a unique country, as I'm sure many of you know, and it's packed with cultural heritage. It's nestled between Europe and the Middle East. It borders Bulgaria and Greece to the west, and it shares borders with countries like Iraq, Iran, and Syria to the east. For example, war-torn Aleppo in Syria is just over 30 miles from the Turkish border. Needless to say, it's not an easy part of the world to be in right now. Unlike many other countries in the Middle East, Turkey claims to be a secular state, although an estimated 90% of its citizens are Muslim. In many ways, because of its secular government, we in the West are ignorant of what's been happening in Turkey lately, including myself. Superficially, we see Turkey as a quote-unquote Western Middle East country that has a reverence for democracy individual rights, and a desire to enter the European Union. It's been a United States ally for many years in the war on terror. We have bases there. But those preconceptions are years old at this point. Even before the 2016 coup attempt, Turkey has been in a downward spiral toward authoritarianism, and it uses the rhetoric of democracy to shroud serious attacks on individual rights. So to help shed light, on what's been going on in Turkey, our guest today is Mahir Zanalov. Mehir is a journalist with the Huffington Post and Al Arabiya. He started his career with the Los Angeles Times and he later joined Today's Zaman and worked there until the Turkish government shut down the newspaper in 2016. What's been happening in Turkey is a personal affair from Mehir. He was deported from the country in 2014 for critical coverage of the Erdogan government. He faces jail time if he ever returns, and his Twitter accounts have been banned in the country. It was recommended I speak to Mehir by a colleague of mine, Sarah McLaughlin, who herself has been critical of Turkish crackdowns on civil liberties, and who told me that Mehir's Twitter account is a must-follow for anyone seeking news on what's been going on in Turkey, and she was right. During the show, I speak with Mehir about the mind-boggling number of people being purged from Turkish civil society right now what the international community can do to help, why the United States has been relatively silent about the growing Turkish tyranny. We also talk about the love affair, or the growing love affair, between Erdogan and Russian President Vladimir Putin, and the bizarre support that Erdogan has within the Turkish population. This podcast was recorded on Tuesday, January 10th, and the arrests and firings, I should say, have only intensified since then. Just this week, the Turkish parliament approved a new draft constitution that, to me, uh, seems to give Erdogan tremendous power and has the potential to transform the country into more or less an executive branch dictatorship. Uh, The new constitution will likely be voted on in an April referendum, and I will certainly update our listeners about the outcome of that referendum on this show. Mehir is in Washington, D.C. I live in New York City. So we spoke on the phone. If the audio quality sounds like that of a phone conversation, it's because it was a phone conversation. But you should be able to hear everything we're saying clearly. If you really enjoy this conversation and want to hear more about Turkey, we'll be releasing a first-ever, so-to-speak, Extra tomorrow. It'll be a conversation with Middle East Studies Association President Beth Barron, whose organization has been sounding the alarm bells and helping scholars in Turkey for quite some time now. Originally, I intended to combine my conversations with Mahir and Professor Barron into one show, but after our editor Aaron Reese and I thought through it some more, we decided it best to give each of these fantastic guests their own space. So again, you'll hear Beth Barron tomorrow, although she'll be mentioned during this podcast. Anyway, I'll get out of the way. Now on to our conversation with Mahir Zanotto. Mahir, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Uh, It was recommended that I speak with you by my colleague, Sarah, because you seem to be one of the most active people on Twitter, sounding the alarm bell about what's happening right now with essentially civil society in Turkey. Can you kind of give us a 30,000 foot overview of what's happening in Turkey right now?
1: We know that at least 169 media outlets uh, were shuttered in the past six months, especially after the uh, emergency law was declared on July um, 20th, just five days after the military coup attempt in Turkey. And the media crackdown has significantly escalated since that time. We know that at least uh, one or two journalists are being uh, jailed uh, almost every day on average uh, since that day in July last summer.
0: Yeah, and I, I read that like the New York Times isn't even running bylines uh, by their journalists in Turkey for fear of any sort of reprimand that the Turkish government might have of them.
1: Oh, that's right. I mean, it's not only Turkish journalists who feel the threat, but also foreign journalists too. Um, I was the, the first foreign journalist in Turkish history who was deported from Turkey over a couple of uh, offensive tweets, and since then, uh, in 2014, 12 Uh, foreign journals were deported. Um, The last one was uh, Dion from the Wall Street Journal, um, who who left Turkey after a brief detention for three days. And since then, the New York Times um, is is running bylines, um, anonymous bylines. And um, so they really fear that that their journalists could be under threat. It could be, you know, strangers, you know, interpreters uh, on the ground, local ones but also the uh, foreign journalists, too. We know that more than a dozen foreign journalists uh, were detained, some of them uh, over um, 40 days, um, such as Frederike Gernig, a Dutch freelance journalist, who was covering the the, the war in the southeastern Turkey. So the Turkish government is sending a signal to foreign reporters that uh, the southeastern Turkey, which is uh, virtually a war zone, whether the PKK and the Turkish army are fighting is off limits to the foreign uh, reporters and and we know that two british journalists from the wise news and the, uh, iraqi um a journalist um also from the wise news were um detained i think like nearly a month and they were deported uh, after that so it's not only turkish journals but also foreign reporters are also feeling the heat of uh the media crackdown in turkey
0: and why? What is the what is the argument that the government is making for the crackdown on media, for the shuttering of news outlets, for the jailing jailing and detention of journalists?
1: Well, in the past, before the military coup attempt, um, they were telling that um, you know you, you can criticize the government, but you cannot insult. So they had been exploiting a law in Turkish penal code that. Um, Uh, that that was about insulting the president, insulting other public uh, officials, and also um, they're also exploiting a very vague and broad anti-terrorism law and trying to jailing um, dissent. So if you are, for example, criticizing the Turkish government or Turkish army's handling of the Kurdish issue, how they, for example, bombing, you know, Kurdish cities, um, then you are promoting the PKK propaganda. If you are, for example, criticizing the government and how the courts are using laws to jail, for example, Gulenists and other, you know, political dissidents, then you are considered as someone who is promoting or spreading the Gulenist propaganda, which is listed as a terrorist organization in Turkey. So they are using a variety of laws. They're actually exploiting them to jail dissidents. Since the military coup attempt, they are saying that the Turkish state and Turkish government is under a grave threat and um uh, and they, they are just jailing you know anyone who is just posting on twitter and facebook um on december 24th the turkish interior ministry um said in a statement that 3700 um i think 10 uh people were detained in the past 6 months for their posts on twitter and facebook even foreigners uh, are included in that list including a, a canadian tourist who said on facebook that the er, that erdogan a turkish president is jailing journalists and and he, she was sent to prison for saying that and she was charged for insulting the president i myself is facing is facing 6 years in prison uh, pressed by erdogan for insulting him but also inciting um hatred and, and animosity uh, among public
0: are, are you a turkish citizen cuz you're in dc right now right
1: yeah, I I'm mean, in, I'm in Washington at the moment. I'm uh, Turkish by marriage, so I'm just half Iranian
0: or half Turkish. Gotcha. So, you know, the, you you talk about the coup in July, you know, precipitating a you know the new crackdown that's happening. But this isn't really new for Erdogan, right? I mean, a lot of the stuff that he's doing to journalists, um, that he's doing to people that support um, the Kurds, for example, in the in the southeast of Turkey has been happening since earlier this year, even last year. I, and, and later in the segment, I'll talk with Beth Barron, who is the president of the Middle East Studies Association. She came to the defense of uh, 1,200 Turkish scholars who signed a petition in support of human rights, uh, particularly with their relation to the Kurds. Is that correct?
1: Yes, yeah, that, that's correct. I mean, it's, it's absolutely correct that this crackdown is not new. Uh, we... Uh, witnessed uh, similar types of crackdown in the, past, in the past decades, not only under Erdogan, but also before that. But the problem today is that that crackdown has significantly escalated, especially after the military coup attempt. Just look at the numbers. 100,000 people have been detained in the past five months, and half of them were arrested pending trial. And the torture has shown its ugly face again. There are at least 25 people who who were found dead in prisons, and um, and we know that in in early 1990s and and in the, in the past, you know, uh, perhaps like six or seven years ago, there there some Kurdish lawmakers and Kurdish politicians were put in jail, uh, and we thought that we actually put a pause on that, but what happened just a couple of months ago? They put like 13 Kurdish lawmakers, including a, a, a leader a presidential rival, Salatin so Demirtas, in prison. This is the man who challenged Erdogan, President Erdogan, during the presidential election. This is the man who told him that will not make an executive president, and now he's in prison. What kind of country is jailing presidential rivals? So uh, it's, it's absolutely right that this crackdown is not new, uh, but it's, it's significantly escalated since the military coup attempt, and especially in the past five years, when there was a constitutional amendment in 2010, and when Erdogan consolidated significantly uh, consolidated power, I think it just uh, gave him a, a free way to further crack down on, on dissidents. He is ex- exploiting the failed military coup attempt to do that. And that um, 1,200 um, academics who signed the peace declaration, basically calling on the Turkish state and the PKK to cease hostilities and uh, resume peace talks. Uh, 200 of them were dismissed and uh, and almost most, um, almost all of them were uh, uh were um in, are are under investigation at the moment and um i think like nearly 50 of them were just dismissed um uh, last friday and uh, they are not the only uh, ones who are facing the threat in turkey we have uh, over 4400 academics were fired from their jobs and and some of them are you know, very celebrated professors, very uh, great scholars, and they were just fired from their universities. Um, There are, I think, like more than 20 of them are uh, presidents of uh, universities. Um, 15 uh, Turkish universities were shut down uh, in the aftermath of the coup attempt, and uh, more than 60,000 Turkish students were just, you know, uh, put in, in limbo.
0: Yeah, and there was a number, almost every dean, it seems like, in the country was dismissed from their job.
1: Well, I'm not sure about uh, about how many deans. Uh, well, if if it if all of the deans were dismissed, but I know that um, 1,600 deans were um, asked to resign uh, after the military coup.
0: Yeah, I'm that's what sure I'm referencing.
1: If, right. I mean, I'm I'm not sure if they are like all of the deans. Uh, but but but, uh, but I know that there are uh, nearly 2,000 academics who are in prison at the moment, and I know that the 4,400. Uh, academics were fired in the past five months, and there are hundreds of academics who just, you know, fled the country. Those dinghy boats that used to um, carry Syrian refugees to Greece are now filled with Turkish professor, professors. And I think it's safe to say that we have the most educated prison population in the world.
0: <laughs> that, yeah, it, it's pretty incredible. I mean, when you're talking about those 1,200 signatories to the peace petition. Erdogan went on public television or public radio or whatever it was and, and called them enemies of the state. He said they were inciting people to hatred. Uh, the, you know, He called upon the institutions, everyone who benefits from the state, to punish them without further delay. And, I mean, that's, that's something that's almost inconceivable here in the United States.
1: That's right. I and mean, we have to understand uh, you know, fault lines in the society in Turkey. And before every election, I and mean, we had, like I think, like four in the past two or three years, before every election, Erdogan is whipping up the nationalist um, uh, sentiments in the country because he really needs those national votes as he's preparing for a, um, a constitutional referendum. I think in like three months, which will uh, uh, grant him broad executive uh, powers as a president. So he's really, um, you know, inviting those um, uh, those actors in the southeastern Turkey for a civil war, basically, and w- which is ongoing in Turkey by uh, shutting down. Uh, Kurdish media outlets by um, by uh, arresting Kurdish politicians and uh, and and you are right I mean this is something inconceivable uh, in the West but you know considering the circumstances in Turkey whenever you are assailing railing against those uh, academics who signed a, a peace letter which is um, uh, considered as a treason by national circles it's actually very helpful for Erdogan so he's a calculating pragmatist. He's a very smart politician, and and he's exploiting those fault lines in the society to make sure that he wins the next election.
0: But do you really have free and fair elections in Turkey? I mean, do the votes really matter anymore?
1: Well, we do have free elections, maybe not fair, because the election day is free. Everyone is free to go and, and cast their ballots freely without any interference, obviously, which is very similar to Western democracies but i don't think uh, this is fair because just imagine the last election was on um november 1st 2015 and just 3 days before the elections uh four media outlets two telev- television channels two newspapers were stormed by the right police and they were shut down and um and there are you know dozens of scores of journalists are in jail there are many many media outlets were were shut down and 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 just imagine what kind of signal this sends to other journalists
0: and you're saying he jails his political opponents as well,
1: yes, exactly. it's not only you know dissidents. it's not only you know activists it's not only journalists or academics, but also you know political rivals too um it, in two thousand and fourteen, Salatin Demirtas, the uh the kurdish uh, uh party h d b leader um challenged him in in the elections and he he got ten percent of the votes. Um, And now he's in jail. Um, So, and ironically, you know, Tuesday was uh, the international, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the Working Journalist Day. But in the past five years, 10,000 Turkish journalists were fired from their jobs. There are an army of Turkish journalists without jobs. And um, just to add uh, insult to injury, Erdogan released a statement on Tuesday saying that, you know, celebrating the, uh, the Working Journalist Day for Turkish journalists. Uh, most of uh, some of whom read that statement in prison i, I presume
0: that, that's pretty incredible and also i mean i, I mentioned when you first came on the show the deterioration of you know of civil society in turkey from the top um i i saw a tweet that you had from over the weekend where you talked about how the erdoğan government is going ahead and shutting down ngos uh you know non-profit organizations that support things like a wide range of things that seemingly have no connection to the Gulen movement or to the Kurdish peace process, things like the Oncology Foundation, the Health for Everyone uh, Association. So it seems
1: like, it, it, you
0: know, what is what is Erdogan looking for here?
1: I, I think Erdogan is not only cracking down on dissidents or, or people who don't, um, whom he, don't, he doesn't like. It's not only that, he's also transforming the entire country. From its education to the military, and by, by shutting down all these you know, associations, foundations, only in the in the past two weeks, um, by the decree uh, that Erdogan signed, uh, in addition to another um, decree uh, issued by the Interior Ministry, uh, nearly 200 uh, similar associations, as you mentioned, were shut down. And since the Military uh, quieting. The number, the numbers are terrifying. There are like more than um, 2,000 foundations and associations were shut down, and and some of them are, of course, you know, related to the Kurdish. I'm not talking about the ones that were shut down last week, but but the others. Some of them were associated with the Gulen movement. Some of them, you know, um, are just foundations that that. Um, just want you know, um, as you know, family planning or you know, abortion kind of uh, you know, foundation. Some of them are promoting education. So when you look at, at the uh, the scale of the crackdown on the civil society, it's worrying. He is transforming the country in a way that, uh, that that will be in line of his wishes.
0: Yeah, and it seems like what he's doing. I mean, I'm not a Turkish citizen. I can't even really I, when you talk about these numbers, here. I mean, they're just so incomprehensible um, to me. I mean, it, it's just unbelievable that something like this could happen in a country that a couple of years ago seemed to be on the fast track to entering the European Union. Uh, you, what is the sense, uh, you said you, you have Turkish relatives, like what is the sense on the ground there and who are the people that are fighting back in Turkey? I mean, can they fight back and in what way?
1: Oh, right. I mean, uh, coming to your first point, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the numbers are staggering. And this is something that's um, uh, that's the unseen in Turkish history. And the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, um, had an editorial a couple of months ago, said that the, the, the t- Turkey purge, the crackdown in Turkey is unparalleled, the, something to the world has seen in the past decades. It's something, you know, unprecedented uh, in, in modern history. And when you compare, you know, these numbers to the uh, to 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 the size of Turkey and its population, and you can see how it damages the Turkish bureaucracy, Turkish institutions, its civil society, and and media. Uh, you know, uh, the the Gulen movement is not really good at you know fighting back in terms of um, you know by by organizing you know street protests. And there's no life for them. Uh, this is only just one part of the opposition in Turkey. The others, I think, uh, the, one of the most successful ones is uh, Kurds, um, and they are successful because you know they are used to this kind of crackdown in the past. I don't know four or five decades, and uh, and the PKK rallied many youth, uh, armed them, and and they fought back against the Turkish state. They are branded as terrorists by the United States, by Turkey, by the European Union. But but uh, there are many many. Uh, political parties emerged in the past two decades who fought back. So they are, their media uh, and, uh, and, and their activists are really very active in Turkey who are fighting back. But when you look at the opposition parties, we have uh, three opposition parties in the parliament. One of them is the Kurdish party, and most of them are in jail at the moment, including two of their co-chairs. The other is the National Party, which is uh, basically and effectively just co-opted by the government, they are voting to um, make Turkey um, a, a presidential system. They're just, you know, in line with Erdogan. So I don't really call them as, as an opposition. Um, and uh, we have another party, the CHP, uh, which is a secular opposition party. And I think they are the, the most powerful ones. And But still, I mean, there's a limit to what they can do. In the past, uh, the CHP was uh, somehow, you know, aligned with the military and the military was so powerful and they, they were playing a bigger role in politics, in civil society, in judiciary. And now because the military is so weak now, uh, that's why the opposition party, the CHP aligned with it is is weaker today. So there's a limit to what they can do and actually they, they can do nothing. And Erdogan is just one by one uh, um, exploiting the fault lines in the society, eliminating um, uh, his enemies one by one, um, and, the, and the opposition parties and activists on the ground uh, can do nothing about it. There's a climate of fear in Turkey, it's so prevalent that the people are really afraid of talking. I have lots of friends who just shut down their Twitter and Facebook accounts because there are many people uh, who are jailed uh, for their Twitter or Facebook posts. So they don't really want to, to be ones uh, who are just, you know, sent to prison. For, for for what they write, I even don't you know uh, send them you know direct messages on Twitter or Facebook and ask them how how they are because I I worry that you know if somehow they are being investigated you know that could be presented as evidence in court. So I even don't send messages for their safety. So you can imagine what others are thinking. And you know I'm a journalist. You know I feel responsibility that you know I I, I need to fight back. I need to be the voice of of those people who are oppressed there. Um, and just imagine, you know, uh, uh, me as a journalist who needs to be brave, you know, I'm trying my best and there's a limit to what, what I can do. And just imagine what others, you know, teachers, doctors, all these people who were purged and dismissed in the past few months. And, and just imagine what they can do. Uh, there's a limit. And um, and those who fight back are, are very few, uh, if any. Uh, which is, which means that we'll have a bleak future for Turkey, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, and
0: I mean, just the, the way you describe it to me, um, it seems like there's almost nothing that can be done within Turkey at this point, short of an armed revolution of some sort. Um, is there? I mean, is it really the pressure really need to come from the international community because Erdogan's done such a good job of consolidating power and nipping away at any opposition within the country itself?
1: Well, uh, well, we had international pressure, let's say, a decade ago. And, and, of course, you know, Erdogan was not all powerful back then. But, you know, when those uh, autocrats, you know, remain in power for so long, for a decade or two or three, they really learn how to defy the international pressure. And the other international actors like the European Union or the United States, they, they learn to adapt to those, you know, authoritarian uh, leaders you know, Saddam Hussein or Bashar al-Assad, I mean, these are the folks, or Muammar Gaddafi. I mean, these are the folks who are really good at defying international pressure. I mean, this is what they are best at. And they are very smart politicians. And, and they, through different diplomatic maneuvering, they're just, you know, pitting one country against another. I mean, look at Turkey, how Erdogan is, you know, jumping on the Russian and Chinese bandwagon and sending signals to the United States. And they, and just when you look at the the past two or three weeks of uh, publications in the Turkish media, how they are targeting the United States, not only the media, but also you know Turkish prime minister, the president, other ministers are assailing against the United States and they're bashing them almost daily. And I just read a news report today that the United States is going to help Turkey uh, in their um, military campaign in northern Syria. So when I look at these facts, you know, I I see that the United States is now considering to adapt to Erdogan and and look at him as someone who is the leader of Turks and who is there to stay. There's a limit to what um, the United States can do. Uh, You know, George W. Bush was the president who invaded countries to bring democracy. And, you know, uh, Barack Obama just turned a blind eye as many, um, you know, leaders, uh, including Erdogan, slid into autocracy. And we, we now have, you know, Donald Trump, who um whose you know victory was um celebrated by dictators like like Putin like you know Erdogan so w- when i look at the uh, development in the world and there's the, uh, the upsurge of populist uh leaders all across the world not only in turkey but also in you know europe uh, the things with the brexit and the united states and the philippines and and russia um i i think that this is the new reality this is the new normal And uh, the the membership with the European Union is on life life support, if not dead. Um, There's almost uh, nothing the European Union can do. Uh, There's a a migrant deal that the European Union is very much interested in in preserving because the influx of the Syrian refugees through Turkey into Europe is also uh, fueling uh, xenophobic, racist uh, sentiments in Europe and giving rise to those populist leaders and with, elections, with crucial elections in Europe next year, particularly in France, I think they are really aware of the fact that they have to keep Turkey, Tur- Turkey happy so that it does not allow those Syrian refugees to cross from Turkey to Europe. And, the, and Turkey needs the European Union money uh, in the face of the economic crisis they are facing there. So I think it's a win-win situation for both sides. And, um, and the international community uh, can do nothing about that amnesty international human rights watch other you know rights advocacy groups um you know they are just you know crying fool. The, the turkey is not really paying attention to them and the Turkish society is actually reviewing them as tools of the western imperialism and oppression so um w- w- the at home the situation is bleak when you look at you know internationally you know there's a limit to what they can do yeah well
0: I mean, when you say things like that, and you say there's a rise of nationalism and nationalist leaders like Erdogan, I mean, does Erdogan have a lot of support in Turkey?
1: Yes, I think this is one of the you know few things that um, that in the Western world people don't really see. They they believe that you know Erdogan uh, you know is a leader of a minority group who is just you know oppressing Turks like the like in Syria, the Bashar Assad is a you know leader of a minority group um I, I think this is a misconception uh, they, one of the um latest um surveys showed that fifty three percent of Turkish people are actually um supporting Erdogan i mean he's wildly popular in Turkey so 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 in that sense um it's he, he kind of effectively built established a tyranny of majority it 's not like you know a few people you know trying to you know, um, p- uh, establish a repressive regime over others. The number, of, the number of the people who are happy um, the way Erdogan is handling the country is perhaps the biggest in Turkish history. It's very hmm. similar to Putin. Whenever I'm reading, you know, news reports about you know Vladimir Putin and Russia, and I say, hey, w- uh, wait a second. I mean, this is very familiar to me. Uh, he's he's a nationalist leader. He's just whipping up those nationalist sentiments in in the country. He's just you know. Um, he's a textbook definition of populism, you know, claiming that, you know, there are special interest groups, not in Turkey, but also uh, internationally, there are dark, evil circles with global links, and they are targeting Turkey in the aftermath of every major terrorist attack or bombing attack or shooting. Every time the Turkish media, uh, uh, from the orders, from the authorities, obviously, they're just uh, and also, uh, politicians too are just saying that you know Turkey is a the target. You are attacking us instead of you know officials resigning or taking responsibility or trying to fix the situation. And when you look at the c- security situation in Turkey, only in the t- 2015 we we'll have more than a dozen bombing attacks. It's uh, and, and we fear that the Turkey will turn into another Syria or Iraq.
0: Yeah, and you know, it seems like such a predicament to me. Um, especially when you have a United States, which is essentially impotent in holding Turkey to account. I know uh, Secretary of State Kerry was there last year, I believe, after the coup. Um, United States uses Turkey as a base in many ways for its operations in the Middle East, right? So they don't want to push back against Erdogan too hard lest they lose their one true ally, uh, military ally in the region. Is that
1: right? Yes, it's right. I mean, Turkey um, had been a Turkish ally, but I'm not sure if they are a strategic ally at the moment or not. I think they are more. Yeah, well, with
0: Russia, yeah.
1: Um, and and I mean, look, um, Erdogan ta- met with Putin for five times in the past six years, and um, and they just you know uh, you know talking on the phone almost in every two weeks, and uh, military cooperation between Turkey and Russia um, is increasing in northern Syria. Uh, and the Russian, you know, um, warplanes are giving an air cover for Turkish military campaign in northern Syria. This is something the United States did not do. And now they are trying to rectify the situation by helping Turkey, trying to halt the Turkish-Russian military cooperation. Uh, but, but you are right. I mean, Turkey is just right on the border of Syria and Iraq, where the United States is fighting against ISIS there. And uh, with incoming administration, which promise that the uh, it's the crux, the the centerpiece of their foreign policy will be fighting and defeating uh, ISIS, I think they will try to use every uh, possibility there is, and Turkey is a very big one of them, um, to fight against ISIS. And the Indulik air base in the southern Turkey is very crucial for U.S. operations in Iraq and Syria. Uh, it's It's otherwise very costly when they fly... Uh, a jet from the Gulf region and uh, and in Air Base in southern Turkey is very close. I think it's very uh, geopolit- geopolitically Turkey is located in a very important uh, place, and the United States will not want to lose Turkey to Russia too. So uh, it kind of seems like a, there's a rivalry going on between um, you know Russia and the United States trying to make sure that Turkey you know stays in their orbit, and I think Russia is doing a better job now because. Erdoğan himself um, views the Western uh, countries as a threat to his authority and and to Turkey in a broader sense. Because Vladimir Putin does not lecture Turkey and Erdoğan about its human rights record, about how Erdoğan is handling the country or jailing dissidents. You know they are quite happy together. But when it comes to the United States, you know they have to release human rights report. They have to, you know, speak up against the you know, jailing dissidents and crushing, you know, civil society. And this is something that Erdogan cannot understand because for him, politics is, you know, if uh, if this is the deal, this is the deal. That's it. Uh, why you have to, you know, say things uh, against my country uh, while you are not saying it to, for example, Saudi Arabia. Uh, so Erdogan uh, cannot understand that the United States needs to say these things. And the United States really, I think, you know, it seems that the United States really wants Turkey to be a Saudi Arabia that, you know, we don't care about your human rights record. Just, you know, uh, just be our friends, be our partners. But Turkey is not another Middle Eastern, you know, democracy. Because in the Middle East, whenever you are becoming authoritarian, you're also becoming pro-Western and pro-United States. I mean, look at Egypt or Jordan or Saudi Arabia or some other countries. Whenever they're more authoritarian, they're actually pro-West. In East Asia, it's different. Different. Whenever they are more authoritarian, they are pro-China. Look at Myanmar. The more the, the, the democracy they become, they are becoming more pro-Western. But Turkey is really a country that that trying very hard to redefine itself as a Western country or Eastern country. So whenever you have, you know, uh, whenever a leader is curbing civil liberties and freedoms in Turkey, it's it's also drifting away from the Western you know um institutions and going towards more to the east to Russia and and China. So Turkey is a country uh, where the partnership with the United States is important is crucial because Turkey respects democracy and civil liberties at least it did in the past. Well, it
0: it still uses the rhetoric of democracy. I mean, you talk about how uh, Erdogan celebrates journalists at the same time he's jailing them. I mean, Vladimir Putin does that same sort of thing over in Russia. And I think the fact that they'll use the rhetoric of democracy and the rhetoric of human rights while at the same time violating democracy and violating human rights allows their Western partners, or at least those of us in the West, those us regular citizens who aren't as tied into what's happening on the ground, to take our eyes off the ball in a sense and that in a sense is even more dangerous than having a place like North Korea where we all know what's happening and there's nothing that the North Korean government can say to convince us otherwise
1: right exactly I mean uh, but you know when you look at other authoritarian countries like let's say uh, the former Soviet you know um, uh, I'm sorry the former Soviet Union or you know China or North Korea I mean they have their own distinct ideology I mean they, they reject democracy they, they say that it's evil in Turkey, um, political Islamists like Erdogan or you know, Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, they, uh, democracy works for them. And what they understand from democracy is not a liberal democracy that we understand in the West. It's a democracy, it, it's an electoral democracy. You know, the rule of people. In Turkey, we don't have the rule of law anymore. We have the rule uh, of the people. Erdogan keeps saying that you know the majority of the people elected me. I'm the voice of the silent majority. These people want me to be prime minister or president, so now I'm doing whatever they ask me to do. Uh, what we have in Turkey is not, uh, you know, a, a justice system. We have a mob justice. Uh,
0: well, but- do, you think, do you think that – I mean, you said earlier, I think you cited a study or a poll that said that 53% of the country supports Erdogan. I mean, I was talking to one of my friends who's actually um, – was a refugee from the Soviet Union and was talking about Vladimir Putin and said, yeah, Vladimir Putin, they say he has this 80% approval rating, but all that really means is there's 20% of the people who felt confident enough that they could say that they didn't support him. I mean, are we getting a little bit of that in Turkey too, that people are just afraid to support Erdogan's opposition? I mean, if I'm a regular citizen of Turkey and I see (laughs) – Undoubtedly, my neighbors getting thrown in jail for the most tenuous connections to an opposition party or an opposition movement. Um, you know, I, I don't know that I could be confident that uh, that I could go to the polls and vote for someone other than Erdogan.
1: Yeah, yeah, but but, but uh, you know, you you actually you know confuse the United States or some other Western countries with Turkey, which is the situation is very different. I mean, look. Yeah, and yeah. And yeah, yeah. my wife. Uh, you know, felt all this brunt and were just kicked out of the country. I'm facing, I'm I wanted for arrest in Turkey. I have lots of friends who are wanted for arrest, who are living in exile. I have, you know, nearly 300 people, most of them, you know, reporters, in Turkish prisons at the moment. And I'm not the only one who has this situation. There are many, many of of, of people I know who are Turks who have those relatives in jail, and and, and some of their, you know, immediate family members support Erdogan. And the reason is because they don't really care about their relatives. They don't really care about, you know, how Erdogan treats people. They, the society is so polarized. There's so many fault lines that they really think that this is a life and death situation in Turkey. You know, you can be, you know, friends. If you're a Democrat, you can be friends with a Republican. If you're a Republican, you can be a friend with a Democrat. But when you look at the United States in the past, let's say, two years, how polarized it is, how it's very difficult for those who are supporting Trump uh, to come together with the never-Trumpers. Um, so in, in Turkey, it just multiply this with 10 times, and, and you will get the picture. You know, um, so, so that's why Erdogan is very powerful. It, it's because he exactly understands how Turkish society works. The false lines, he's, he's exploiting those false, false lines. He's just striking alliances with other groups, you know, eliminating one opposition force, and then going after another one by one in just 15 years to just, you know, absolutely finish the Turkish society. For example, let's say he, uh, the Turkish authorities raided an opposition uh, newspaper, I think, back in uh, October, right? They did not just went to the newspaper and arrested everyone. They arrested 13 people, but those 13 people are liberal wing of the newspaper uh, and lost and hated by the, the old guard establishment of the newspaper, so he effectively pitted one part of the newspaper against another and tried to make sure that the you know some of the readers of the newspaper do not you know rally behind those you know columnists and journal, journalists in the newspaper, so he's very smart politician, he exactly understands how these lines work both at home and also abroad, uh, so that 's the reason why so many people are supporting him, and you know the one of the uh, hallmarks, one of the signs of uh, being an authoritarian leader is that the majority of people is supporting you. It's not because, you know, they approve how you handle the country, but, but you know, there's the almost entire Turkish TV networks, newspapers are brainwashing the society 24-7. And there are many, many people who have no idea about these corruption allegations and how, you know, people are, uh, you know, feeling the heat under the authoritarian government, uh, and, and those who do are so polarized that uh, they just support Erdogan because they say that, look, we had, you know, Gezi demonstrations three years ago. We had then, you know, corruption investigation, which they claim was a coup. And then we had the military coup, coup at And when you consider how Erdogan came to power, the background of it, since the 1990s, we had only one single government. And between 1990 and 2001, we had... Ten different governments, coalition governments. We we had two major economic financial crises in Turkish history. One of them was in 1994, and the other was 2001. And Erdogan came to power in 2002. And two pillars that uh, kept Erdogan uh, from falling apart was political stability and economic stability. And uh, and these are you know uh, reinforcing processes too. And Erdogan was very successful in preserving both political stability and economic stability, which, was, you know, uh, we, which we didn't see before him. So Turkish people are rewarding that. Turkish people are saying that, okay, Erdogan is someone who can keep you know, uh, Turkish society firmly in, in place. We don't have political turmoil. We don't have economic crisis. So we are happy.
0: Uh, yeah, as they say about the old fascists like Mussolini, you know, they might be fascists, they, but they make the trains run on time for example. So
1: actually there's the a famous motto in Turkey whenever there were you know allegations of corruption you know some of the Erdogan supporters said that okay fine they are stealing but at least they are working which was kind of a motto very you know embarrassing motto of you know Turkish uh, government loyalty.
0: Yeah. Well, how we're running out of time here. I know it's really hard within Turkey to get this sort of information outside of Turkey. I saw that you tweeted uh, a couple of days ago that police now have access to internet users' account information in c- case they c- commit any sort of, like, quote-unquote, crime on social media. How are you getting information? I mean, you don't need to tell me specific sources, of course, but, like, how do Westerners get this information outside of Turkey? And Like, where should we go to learn what's happening? Aside from your Twitter account, which is at Mahira Zinalov, um M-H- M-A-H-I-R, Z-E-Y-N-A-L-O-V. Uh, like, where do we go to get this information?
1: Uh, well, uh, I think, I'm not sure if I agree with you that you know, it's hard to get information out of Turkey because you know, Turkish leaders are so brazen that they don't really care about you know, hiding information. What they try to hide is, um, you know, information that would damage them in the eyes of Turks. Uh, they only care about the internal consumption. And, uh, and you know, jailing journalists, you know, it's not something that would tarnish uh, the government's reputation at home, but abroad, but they don't care about that. You know, or, you know, just, just sending tens of thousands of people to jail or purging them. You know, that's something that the Turkish people would cheer because they would say that, oh, look, the Turkish government is cleaning the Turkish bureaucracy and Turkish state from traitors. But this is something that would tarnish the reputation of the government abroad. And so they don't care about that. So they just publish all this information online. And all these, the numbers and the, you know, dismissed people, purge people, I mean, these are all just online by, um, you know, uh, published by the the official newspaper and the state-run news agencies. They are just all online uh, published by the Turkish media, pro-government media, because they, it, they are only targeting the internal consumption. For example, in Russia, when there's an opposition journalist, you know, uh, being jailed, of course, they are trying to hide this so that you know they don't seem bad uh, for, for the West. But that's not the case in Turkey. In the era of social media, of course, you cannot hide anything. But unless the Turkish TV networks or the major newspapers pick them up, you know, they don't shape the public opinion. And uh, and those who use you know the social media uh, platforms like Twitter and Facebook are mostly those you know critics anyway. Uh, most of the electorate of the Turkish government are uh, watching, uh, you know, uh, t- t- TV networks because most of them are, you know, rural, you know, non-college-educated people, and um, so they don't really, you know, go online and read, you know, foreign, you know, uh, news outlets. They only watch TVs, which are just uh, brainwashing them 24/7. So it's not really. Uh, if the if the you know the the news is out there, it's not damaging the government
0: so that's you know one of the things that I learned from this conversation I hope our listeners take away i mean i came, i came to this situation before I spoke with you just now from the perspective of a westerner to the from the perspective of someone who believes that if a government is doing this sort of thing, shutting down n g o s jailing journalists jailing academics um and creating states of emergency that give the executive branch huge swaths of police power. If I see that, I think, okay, this is the something the government wants to cover up. But what I've learned from you is in Turkey, no, this has wide popular approval, what he's doing. And so it's not hard to learn about what he's doing because they'll tell you.
1: Exactly. I mean, look at the Philippines, right? I mean, uh, Filipino leader you know, Duterte does not hide the fact that you know, um, he's killing those, you know, drug dealers, and he does not uh, hide the fact that he did it in the past because it's very popular in the country, and he doesn't care about how the world thinks about it. And he's uh, very anti-Western, um, and uh, whenever, you know, he's asked about all these deaths and murders, and you know, extrajudicial killings, he's very proud of it. And it, uh, the this, this situation is very similar in Turkey, too. The Turkish people are supporting this, and the Turkish government does not really care about the, you know, international opinion. And uh, you know Erdogan just you know a couple of weeks ago said that uh, they are calling me dictator, referring to you know Western media outlets and editorials in, in, in the West, in the Western newspapers. It's just you know this goes from my you know right ear and goes out from the left ear. That's a Turkish saying. So this is his mindset. He, uh-huh. he he now he now knows that the international community can do nothing about that. So he's just mostly focused on the Turkish electorate because there's a very crucial referendum to win in just three
0: miles. Yeah, and I was going, I mean, one of my one of my questions for you was going to be, you know, if Erdogan were to lose power, would Turkey be a safer place for journalists and professors and other regular citizens? Or has the culture changed so drastically in Turkey that, you know, they're sort of screwed, even if he is gone, because there's this populist sentiment that supports what he does. And I think your answer would be, well, you know, Erdogan isn't the whole problem right now.
1: Right, exactly. I mean, we also have this, you know, culture of, uh, you know, mob lynching or mob justice. You know, I can hear uh, the, the crowd, um, whatever Erdogan is, you know, speaking, the crowd is chanting death, death, death. I mean, that's how they crucified Jesus. That's how they, you know, killed so- Socrates. This is the mob justice. And, uh, you know, in, in Turkey, you can be easily jailed for offensive remarks. In Turkish culture, you know, we cannot swear at people. You know, it's it's, it's considered as a dishonorable thing. And whenever, you know, you write, you know, very harsh criticism, I mean, let alone just, you know, insults and swearing words, just when you write, you know, harsh criticism against, you know, Turkish politicians, you can find at least 20 articles in the Turkish penal code that would criminalize uh, whatever you write. And Turkish people would say, hey, I mean, just if you criticize, criticize, but why are you insulting? so uh, they are actually using those criticism uh to to um to kind of like portray you as someone who is you know insulting the president or public officials so it's all about it's really very linked to the turkish culture where the leader is venerated is, is revered and where you cannot insult them you have to respect them and whenever you don't respect the turkish president people have a hard time understanding it. You know, We have a respect to the office of presidency or the state or public institutions. And as a, as a citizen or journalist or activist, I may not have, right? But in Turkey, you cannot say that I support the military coup attempt. There could be a possible that someone supports it, right? And this is protected under the freedom of speech, freedom of expression. But if you say that I support the military coup attempt, for example, then it's criminal. Uh, it's something that's, you know, inconceivable in the Western countries. But this is also about culture, that the the Turkish people needs to be uh, informed and educated that, you know, when when you open the gates of criminalizing speech, this will actually turn back as a boomerang against you. Um, And there's no way that you can stop it. There's no limit. You know, when you open the gates of, you know, xenophobia or racism, it does not stop somewhere. You know, it will just uh, target everyone. So uh so we have to as Turks, you know, we have to understand this fact. But there are many people in Turkey uh who support these jailing journals not because they don't like them, just because, you know, they don't have that, you know, mindset, that mentality that you cannot <clears throat> you cannot, you know, uh, try or prosecute journalists because you can you can hardly serve justice in those trials.
0: Yeah. Well I mean, it's it's sort of a dispiriting conversation for me to have with you. Right now, because it, it's, it seems like a very bleak outlook and the things you're talking about, the criminalizing of speech, uh, these are things that in the work that me uh, my organization, the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education, does on college campuses, we see all the time the use of speech codes that are well intentioned or seem to go after things that no one would disagree with, end up being wielded by people, those in power, who um, you want to use them to essentially crush dissent. Or go after their own, you know, petty disagreements. And here in Turkey, you you have Erdogan using, you know, statutes that criminalize things like terrorist propaganda to go after people, you know, like signatories to the peace petition, for example. Um, so it's it's very dispiriting. And following your Twitter account, while very informative, sh- you know, demonstrates to me that in the West, this is should be those of us who support free speeches one of our foremost concerns. And as as you sign off here, because we're running out of time, where should those interested in learning more about Turkey go to get that information?
1: Well, well there are um, uh, several um, news outlets um, in English. Um, I, I think one of them is uh, Hurriyet Daily News, where they can get their um, news from. Uh, and they are, you know, somehow uh, somewhat independent, uh, older questionably. Uh, and and there is, you know, if they want to get the, the government version of events, you know, they can go to Daily Sabah um, when they Google them, I mean, you can just, you know, access their website. And there is a another, you know, opposition um, news outlet called TurkishMinute.com. If they go there, you know, you can actually see the, um, the the crackdown on the opposition and the latest, you know, breaking news about Turkey. And there is another website that, uh, that I think is very interesting. They keep uh, track of the the crackdown in turkey by numbers it's called turkeypurge.com if you go there you can actually see all these you know numbers about you know journalists academics you know uh, foundations shut down and the, you know the people purged um uh, and all these you know uh, the judicial proceedings there so i think they are really very good you know reference website uh that you can go to and there's also another um uh, the the website they called the which i'm um you know editing um, and and it's a uh, relatively new website. We're also publishing some somewhat, you know, investigative, you know, in-depth um, articles about Turkey. And I think it's it's also a very good place to go and you know check out about what's going on in Turkey. And these are only you know just few uh, Turkish, um, uh, you know, um, the, the news outlets that are uh, you know publishing stories about Turkey. In English for the Western audience
0: Yeah, Staggering, staggering stories I mean crazy and scary, scary stories too, well I I hope that you and your family uh, stay safe, of course you're here in the United States and um, you know we'll do what we can here uh, in the free speech community to keep sounding the alarm bells about what's happening over there, but I want to thank you again for coming on the show and keep up the great, great work in in letting the world know about what's happening
1: Thank you very much, thanks for having me
0: that was Mahir Zanalov. To learn more about Mahir and the Turkish crackdowns, I highly recommend following his Twitter account, which is at Mahir That is at M-A-H-I-R-Z-E-Y-N-A-L-O-V. Also, don't forget that tomorrow, we'll be releasing our first ever So To Speak Extra, a conversation with Middle East Studies Association President Beth Barron. During that show, we'll learn more about what organizations in the West, like MESA, are doing to fight the growing threat, an existing threat, to academic freedom posed by the Erdogan government. This podcast is hosted, recorded, and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash talk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at so2speak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. Until next time, everyone, thank you for listening.